the interplay between gender and globalization is an important topic because if we want to continue having public support for globalization, this public support must be found among both men and women. And therefore, it is important to understand possible differential effects. The open, rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortevech. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we're going to talk about women and trade. In our discussion, we want to focus on how international trade impacts women. More specifically, we'd like to explore both the upside and the downside of global trade and its impact on gender equality. Now, we know that international trade creates opportunities, but from a gender equality perspective, does it also create equal opportunities? And what steps can be taken to ensure that trade and globalization empowers women? Now, unlocking the economic potential of women is key to unlocking development and growth opportunities. But how does international trade fit in? And what role can new technologies play? Now, to address these issues, we have an absolutely fantastic panel for you. First of all, I'm really happy that joining us from London is Professor Beata Javorczyk. Beata is the EBRD's chief economist. Now, the chief economist is, in many ways, the EBRD's strategic and analytical brain trust, providing thought leadership inside and outside of the EBRD on economic issues related to the bank's work in the countries where it works. Now, Dr. Yavorczyk is on leave from the University of Oxford, where she holds a professorship in economics and is a fellow of All Souls College. She is also a director of the International Trade Programme at the Center for Economic Policy Research in London. She specializes in international trade, and in her extensive research, she also focused on the implications of globalization on gender equality. And secondly, I'm joined from Washington by Katrin Kuhlman. Katrin is visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where she is also the faculty co-director of the Center on Inclusive Trade and Development. Katrin has over 25 years of experience in international law, development, and trade. Her work and research focuses on trade and development, including regional trade agreements with a particular focus on Africa, inclusive agricultural trade, and trade and gender. Among her various other affiliations, she is the founder of the New Markets Lab and serves as a member of the Trade Advisory Committee on Africa of the Office of the United States Trade Representative. 
With particular relevance to today's conversation, she is also a member of the WTO's Gender Research Hub. Now, perhaps to get us started to talk about this big topic of how globalization and international trade impacts gender relations and gender equality, perhaps, Beata, I can ask you, why is this topic important? Why should we spend time thinking about it? And what are the different angles from your perspective that we should be thinking about? Well, thank you, Rem. It's a pleasure to be joining this conversation. The interplay between gender and globalization is an important topic because if we want to continue having public support for globalization, this public support must be found among both men and women. And therefore, it is important to understand possible differential effects. And these differential effects on men and women may work through complex and multiple channels. So let's start with market access. Opening of export markets gives firms an incentive to upgrade their technologies. And that's because they can spread the cost of investment over a larger volume of their sales. Technological upgrading often means that less physical strength is required on the production line. And that means that suddenly women who before were unable to get those production jobs, they are suddenly able to perform very well on manufacturing floor. And there is evidence from Mexico showing that after NAFTA came into effect, uh, there was an entry of new firms in Mexico. There was investment in technological upgrading and the share of women employed by those exporting firms went up. And to what extent, Katrin, in your work, particularly on Africa, does the gender dy dimension come in? I think this is becoming more and more significant in trade conversations in Africa, worldwide. I think gender and trade, which is something that I was thinking about when I was working as a trade negotiator 20 years ago, is now becoming a mainstream point of conversation, which I think is tremendous. And this is what we were hoping, as some of us at least were hoping for back then, at least that we would start thinking about this differential effect, as Beata mentioned. I think there are a couple of things that are prompting that. So maybe I'll start kind of at the high level and then go to your point in Africa. I think high level globally, we are realizing, and part of this, I think, is just also because of the events of the past few years where we have seen that trade and the global trading system, the global economy is subject to shocks. It could be shock from, you know, unexpected the pandemic, for example, for climate shock. It could be other types of shock. And I think that that's making us realize that we need to incorporate a number of different perspectives into how we think about trade, that we need to have a more inclusive approach to trade overall that can deal with these uncertainties that we're going to face, these vulnerabilities. When I was working in trade, again, as a negotiator years ago, there often was a comment made about gender that trade is gender neutral. And I think that now finally we have realized that that is not true, that it is not the case that trade impacts everyone exactly the same way, that we do need to differentiate between different communities, between men and women, in the broadest sense that we also need to differentiate between countries. And so 
to your point on on Africa too, I have spoken with you before about some of the developments that are underway in Africa and the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, which is this big, exciting new initiative that is much more than a trade agreement to really bring together the continent as one unified market. That, I think, you know, we can see kind of the, to me at least, these these issues that are kind of these frontier issues, which are really being looked at in the context of this new agreement. Gender is one of them. Digital is another investment competition, intellectual property. So I feel like in some ways that is a bit of a sign of the future of trade too, that these issues that were sort of trade and issues before are now really coming to the forefront and are an integral part of how to think about trade going forward. So gender is increasingly a part of, say, the trade conversation. Are there specific sectors, maybe for this is something you can address, Beata, where where we see questions regarding gender equality play out more prominently than in other sectors. Is this mainly a a story of, as you mentioned, market access and greater automation allowing greater inclusivity? Or are there specific sectors where this is decidedly still not the case? I think before we start talking about differences between sectors, it would be useful to think about another channel through which globalization affects gender, namely inflows of foreign direct investment. Now, in traditional societies, societies with conservative gender norms, firms may be less willing to hire women. They prefer hiring men to hiring women. So foreign affiliates that come from more gender-equal countries can create job opportunities for local women. And that's because being more meritocratic, they offer a much more interesting uh, environment, much more promising environment for female employees and a greater path of advancement. And there is actually quite strong empirical evidence looking at foreign acquisitions in countries as diverse as Japan, Korea, and Chile. And it shows that after a foreign acquisition, the share of female employment goes up. So here we are talking about a multinational acquiring an existing local firm. Now, how do we know that this is about bringing different gender norms rather than this technological upgrading channels? We know that because if you compare as I've done in my own work, foreign affiliates operating in Japan to Japanese firms in the same industry operating in the same year of comparable size, you see that foreign affiliates have a larger share of female employees, female managers, female directors, and female board members. Moreover, they are more likely to offer childcare subsidies, flexible working arrangements, and we are talking about pre-COVID times, right, when those arrangements were quite rare. And employees in those firms are take a larger share of their holidays. As you know, in Japan, many employees don't use up their vacation allocation. And the other piece of good news is that um, research on China, for instance, shows that these gender norms that are brought by multinationals, they spread to other firms in the same industry. 
Let me finish with an anecdote here. Um, I was talking about the role of multinationals in traditional societies in creating employment opportunities for women during a conference in Saudi Arabia. As you can imagine, from neck to toe, I was wrapped in a black abaya. And I got an ovation from the female section of the conference because, yes, there was a female and male section of the conference because I think this very much resonated with women who were present there. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on women and trade with Beata Javorczyk and Katrin Kuhlman. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break. I'm going to continue talking about women and trade with Beata Javorczyk and Katrin Kuhlman. That's really interesting. So that, if I can paraphrase, that suggests that globalization, or at least some of the agents of globalization, these multinational companies, that they promote more gender inclusivity. Katrin, to you, basically the same question regarding, are there specific sectors or perhaps even specific technologies that, from your vantage point, stimulate the introduction of these gender norms? I think that when we think about sectors, it's important also to think about what women's role in these sectors looks like. And it's producers, it's consumers, it's a variety of different things, right? So we have to, when we kind of think about the how different sectors in, interact with women in trade, I think it's sort of important to go to the roles that women play and and how those sectors relate to those. I think from a production side, and I think Beata already touched on this, women are engaged in the global economy in a number of different ways. They are more and more engaged in manufacturing, although it tends to be lighter manufacturing rather than heavier manufacturing, which is more labor-intensive versus more capital-intensive. I think that's an important element to think about in the context of trade and how it impacts gender and how trade opportunities can impact women. They also tend to be very, very heavily involved in services across the board. Everything from insurance to financial services to health services to tourism and transport. And then women are also really heavily involved in agriculture in many, many parts of the world. And again, there are particular aspects of how that plays out in a trade context that I think are really important to consider. This is what women are doing for their jobs. This is what they're doing day to day to take care of their families. They're also consumers, though, of all of these goods and services. And so there's a differentiation too, I think, in terms of how women are 
consuming things for themselves and for their families, which has implications for trade. So for example, women tend to be often responsible for the household and taking care of children, and their purchasing tends to also be geared towards that. So certain products might be more heavily consumed by women, like lower cost apparel and footwear. You know, if you think of women, including in the United States, going maybe to Walmart and buying things for their kids, right, that are not expensive, those items also tend to be more heavily taxed in a trade context than luxury goods, for example. So there's kind of this burden that's placed on women's consumption in some ways by the trading system that affects the types of things that women would be buying for their families. This is also true, I think, for certain services. In terms of the things that will help facilitate women's entry into the global economy or, you know, more participation in the global economy, I mean, I think that you said earlier, technology certainly, I think, is a huge factor there. Getting women more engaged in digital trade is something that's been a a big focus of different trade initiatives. And I think that we can see that there's a tremendous value there. But women also do face, and I think this is another question that we'll get to, they also face, you know, more considerable hurdles in that regard as well. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to the barriers or the the difficulties in a in a second, but I think it's important to dwell on this digital element for a little bit. Also because we know that particularly in developing countries, women tend to play a very strong role in the informal economy, also in in small and medium enterprises. And and what are your expectations or your your observations regarding the impact that the digital revolution will have and sort of the rise of digital services trade and e-commerce on gender inclusivity? I mean, I think that in general, this, and again, we've seen this over the last few years in particular, this real surge in digital trade is creating tremendous opportunities for smaller businesses. And women tend to be heavily represented in that category of smaller businesses, whether it's SMEs or MSMEs, many of them tend to be women-owned and driven businesses. You also mentioned that women tend to be more involved in the informal sector. And I think that that's a piece that really plays into this too, that deserves a lot of attention. So there's a lot that can be said about the informal sector element of it. One thing that I would highlight, which I would love to come back to later, is that in the informal sector, women don't tend to enjoy as much legal protection. So with formality comes legal protection. It also comes the ability to engage in business in a more structured way. And so sometimes, of course, to to be part of global trade, you have to be formalized so that you can fill out the forms and, you know, have all of the kind of proper bells and whistles in place in order to, to trade across borders. And this is true in the digital context as well. So I think that these things are interconnected. I think that this digital, you know, revolution is pushing more and more women into global trade than we would have seen before because it is breaking down those physical barriers to engaging in trade. But I think that some of these other aspects, in particular, the informality piece and the digital divide, you know, I think is is an important part of that. But there's no question, I think, that this is where a lot of opportunity is going to come in for women and small businesses. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And it's also, I mean, in my mind, it's, it, it's also driven by the fact that Amid all this conversation about deglobalization or, or or fracturing international trade environment, the one place where we actually still see very strong growth in terms of interconnectedness and and globalization is in the digital space. Let me bring in two examples on the impact of 
access to digital infrastructure on SMEs, right? As Catherine rightly mentioned, women are more likely to work in small and mid-sized firms than to be employed in large, large firms. In our last year's transition report, which was devoted to the topic of digitalization, we did the following exercise. We had very detailed information on the location of firms, and we also had very detailed information on the location of towers transmitting 4G mobile signal. And that allowed us to compare firms that were located very close to each other, except that one of them was still within the range of the 4G signal and the other was not. So access to 4G signal, that's access to fast internet connection on your mobile phone. And we found that among small services firms, so those that have, you know, five up to nine employees, access to faster internet connection was associated with increase in the number of customers and increase in product innovation. In another exercise, we looked actually at the access to broadband, so fast internet in Turkey, that there was a national rollout of, of broadband, of fiber optic cable. And there we found that firms that got access to fast internet were more likely to find new customers abroad and they increased their number of products they were exporting, the number of countries they were serving. And this effect was present only for small and mid-sized enterprises. And that's not surprising because a large firm can afford to spend a significant chunk of money on finding new customers, on learning about export markets. While for SMEs, such investment is often prohibitively expensive. Very interesting. And in your view, how does that tie into the question of what it means for, for male-female relations? Is it simply an, an effect that plays out because women are overly represented in the group of SMEs? Or is it the services sector, which is primarily the driver behind sort of women playing a stronger role here? Is there a gender effect, if you will? I think the gender effect is related to the firm size. If you think about trade in general, exporters are special. Exporters are typically the largest, the most productive firms. SMEs export much less frequently. So if you lower barriers to entry into export markets, so these may be the bureaucratic barriers or these may be informational barriers, that will allow smaller firms to benefit from export opportunities. And by the virtue of the fact that SMEs tend to employ more women, it's going to create opportunities for women. Great. We can already put that down as one of the ways in which to further promote gender equality by reducing those barriers, those NTBs, and, and perhaps even traditional trade barriers for small and medium enterprises. We'll continue on that in that guys in a, in a, in a little bit, but I, I feel that we've now covered sort of the glass half full part of the story, sort of the benefits. There is also a glass half empty 
which we need to discuss, which is some of the barriers that women still face in terms of reaping the benefits of globalization. And Beata, you've been researching this for quite some time, particularly on the impact on the gender pay gap. How do you see them, say, perhaps the negative effects of globalization on gender norms and gender equality? So globalization is not necessarily women's best friend because it requires working across time zones. So now here, I am not talking about production workers in a developing country. I am talking about college-educated women working in Northern Europe. So what's the story here? If you are working for an exporting firm in Norway, you need to communicate with your customers in foreign countries. These foreign countries may be several time zones away, which means that you may have to make early morning phone calls or you may be on Zoom late in the evening. Similarly, you may have to travel and you know traveling across time zones is more onerous than traveling short distances. Therefore, working across time zones, it is more difficult for women because women tend to have more obligations on the home front. In the morning, they may have to drop off kids at school. In the evening, they need to put them to bed. And that means that women who work for exporting firms may not lean in. They may not volunteer to take another project, to lead on finding customers in a faraway market. Or maybe they are not given these opportunities because they are perceived as less flexible. Now, what do you see in the data? Very detailed data allowing us to observe employees matched to firms and detailed firm export structure. We see is that as firms increase their export reach to countries that are more distant in terms of time zones, the gender wage gap increases. And this is controlling for education, for family circumstances, for this unobservable characteristics of of workers and firms. And this effect is found among college-educated workers. So these are the women who would be talking to foreign customers, dealing with goods stuck at the customs that would be given advice, technical advice to foreign customers on how to use a particular machine and so on. Moreover, this effect is found primarily among people under 45, so women under 45. And this is the age when they are likely to have small children. And you see that the effect is driven by people holding managerial, professional, or technical jobs. So women in these good, high-paying jobs are not reaping the same rewards of globalization as their male counterparts because working for a global firms requires a lot of temporal flexibility and women may be less well-positioned to offer that. It's fascinating and shocking at the, at the same time to hear you spell that out. Do you think, and the data may not be available yet, but do you do you think that sort of the post-COVID reality, where we are now doing much more online and a lot more business transactions, 
don't take place face to face, but take place screen to screen. I mean, we're also meeting across different time zones rather than meeting in in a in a room somewhere nice in in, in London. Do you think that will have an effect on the outcome of the research that you mentioned? In other words, will there be a post-COVID correction as we become more accustomed to doing things digitally? I think the jury is still out on that because we are moving from a completely remote work to hybrid work. And I think women may be more likely to spend more time at home, which means that they will interact less with their peers at work. They are less likely to be seen by their bosses as you know, being busy driving the company agenda. So it remains to be seen. And is this also a question of the selection bias of the firms themselves? Or is this a decision driven by those that apply for a particular type of jobs? In other words, is the is the company to blame or is it the nature of the of the job itself? So I would be hesitant to assign blame, but I want to say that in this study we are able to take the unobservables that drive the match between a worker and a firm. So in other words, we are able to correct for a selection of women with particular characteristics to particular firms. Moreover, using statistical techniques, our comparison is between genders within the same firm year cell. Now, to give you more confidence into this result, I have recently looked with co-authors into Danish data. And there we looked at both importing, exporting, total trade. We looked also at the distance between Danish firm and its foreign parent or its foreign subsidiaries, and you find the same effects. Working across time zones is associated with a higher gender wage gap. Right. And to continue this theme, as Beata mentioned, that globalization isn't necessarily a woman's best friend. Catherine, you already highlighted some of the barriers that women still face, also on the legal front. What's your take on this notion of the glass being half empty when it comes to globalization and gender equality? Well, I mean, I think that maybe the glass is half empty just in terms of some of the challenges women face, period, right? Globalization and and international trade, even aside, I think women tend to face some pretty formidable challenges in their work. I'm fascinated by Beata's study, by the way, because partly because I feel like she's describing my life (laughs) (laughs) and hearing about the challenges that women face working across multiple time zones. But I do agree that that's not something that every woman can manage. And it does mean that you have to have certain support systems at home to be able to work that way. And I think that that is something that a lot of women find challenging too, to have that support system that will enable them to enter into some of these new opportunities. I would say just kind of taking it back a little bit more to the, you know, smaller business level, because I think that the challenges that professional women working in export sectors or law or something face are different sometimes than the the challenges that small businesses will face in just trying to get things done in the market. Maybe I could just 
cover a few of those because I think that those are also, again, I'm not sure that they're a result of globalization. I think that they're just a factor of women's work in general and maybe more integrated markets. I think one of them is physical challenges dealing with the market. So I think in a lot of countries, women are trading sometimes on foot or, you know, getting to a border late at night where there are all kinds of harassment, safety considerations. So I think just the physical aspect of of trading is something that's more considerable for women often than men because they face these other challenges. And there is a way to, to deal with that, but it has to be recognized. It has to be taken into account. I think we touched on this already, but I do want to emphasize that these procedural challenges that are associated with trade. Trade is something that is complicated. It involves a lot of paperwork. It involves a lot of rules and regulations. And having access to all of that, I think, is something that sometimes is harder for women. I think Beata was talking earlier about why that is. And I would say that there's another aspect too, which is maybe a network challenge that women are not necessarily plugged into business networks where some of that knowledge is kind of passed along in the same way that maybe men would be. I think that that women who have businesses that are getting stronger and stronger sometimes are doing it kind of by their own grit and not necessarily because they're part of a larger network. I think that's changing, but I think that that's a factor too. I mean, I started a nonprofit. I know that when I was doing it, I talked to other people who had done it. That's just how any business any business operates that way. And when you don't have that network, you don't have other people who can guide you, you're at a disadvantage. And I think that that that's often true. And this, you know, I mean, on the procedural side, it's everything from customs to non-tariff measures and documentation. We can talk more about that because, again, I think there are ways to address that. Capacity challenges, I think, are tremendous too. They can include dealing with these non-tariff issues, but they can also be capacity challenges. I think Beata referenced this too, just knowing where the market is, who your customers are, how do you how do you access these larger markets? And then there are legal challenges that women around the world face. They cannot own property, or if they need to do something that involves any kind of, you know, using property as collateral, they have to get permission from their husband to do that. They they don't don't inherit property. There are challenges in the way that a lot of countries' legal systems are designed around women's work and equal pay and non-discrimination. Access to finance is something that is both about the money flows, but it's also about the legal dimension too. And so I think that these are places where women do tend to face a lot of challenges and then certainly on finance in and of itself. I think for any small business, first of all, getting finance is a challenge. And I've studied a bit some of the legal dimensions of finance for small businesses and in sectors like agriculture, and often financing is not designed necessarily to go to small businesses or to go to riskier sectors. And so I think that if, you know, for any business that falls within that category, it's going to be harder to get financing, which is a challenge for any business. So I think those are some of the things where, again, not necessarily a result of globalization. I mean, maybe having more integrated markets pushes us in a direction of getting better solutions to some of these things. But certainly as markets do become integrated, it highlights these challenges even more. Both of you sketch sort of problems or negative externalities connected to to globalization and its impact on gender equality, but both from very different perspectives. On the one hand, you have sort of the challenges that people in developing economies face, and then there are the 
the challenges that that Beata mentioned, which play out much more in the in developed economies. To me, it suggests a commonality of interest on both the developed and developing economy sides to to start to to talk about this. And I'd like to just spend a couple of minutes to learn from you how we can improve the situation. Going back to Beata's research, how do you close that gender gap? Is this perhaps a question of the multinational firms or the exporting firms having the support structures in place that enable women to operate more in these jobs that they are now effectively being shut out from? Or are there other things we should be thinking about? There are many interventions that could be helpful, right? So starting with what we discussed was lowering bureaucratic barriers to trade that allow SMEs to enter export markets, lowering barriers to FDI inflows because FDI inflows bring more progressive gender norms to conservative countries and create opportunities for women. Having gender provisions in regional trade agreements, that's something Catherine will talk more about. But let me just say that even if they are aspirational and they don't have immediate effects, they put the topic on the table and they support national debate on this topic. And finally, there are much more concrete things that we can do. Like, for instance, EBRD is involved in supporting SME lending to women-led businesses. This is important. My EBRD colleagues did a fascinating experiment. They prepared loan applications, and each application came in two versions. On one application, it was a man who owned an SME who was applying for a loan. The other application was identical, but there was a female name. And then Turkish bankers working in Turkey were supposed to evaluate these applications. And the result that emerged from the experiment was that women tended to be asked to provide more collateral, or they were more frequently asked to provide collateral. And I think that's why it's important to have dedicated programs for women-led businesses. Great. And Catherine, on, on this question of the role of gender clauses or gender protocols in free trade agreements, I know you've been doing some very interesting research on this. You have a forthcoming paper on gender approaches in regional trade agreements. What can you share with us regarding what the rationale is behind introducing gender protocols in free trade agreements? And what should we expect them to be able to deliver? So I think I would touch on three interconnected pieces. One is maybe where the trends are right now, what we're seeing in terms of integrating gender into trade agreements, because I think it's a very exciting time to look at that. And all of a sudden, we see a lot more happening, even though I will say that some of the original trade agreements that incorporated gender we're in the 1980s in African trade agreements. So this is not a completely new thing. It's just taking off more and more now. Countries like Canada, Chile, Europe is doing this more and more. The United States is 
a bit of a latecomer, but I hope is also, you know, jumping onto this, this really important train and a number of other countries are as well. So like this is now becoming something that it's hard to look at a trade agreement without thinking about gender. So, and there are some differences in how different regions approach this, whether they put, you know, tend to have more binding provisions, less binding, they kind of put gender in the context of something else like sustainable development, which is Europe's approach more. Um, so I think that's all really interesting to study and to, to keep watching. What are the trends here? And we talked earlier about the African continental free trade area, which is going to have a separate protocol and gender. So I think a protocol is one approach. And, and I would say then the kind of second aspect of this is just the design. How do you do it? Where do you put it? What does it look like for trade lawyers? We like these things. We get very excited, I think, about legal design and agreement design, but it really does matter. And Beata mentioned earlier, a lot of these provisions actually are more aspirational still right now. They're a little softer. They're focused more on you know, putting awareness on gender issues or facilitating cooperation between the parties. She's absolutely right that that can make a big difference. Even if they are not sort of traditionally legally binding commitments, it can make a big difference to have these in-trade agreements because it means that there is a, you know, recognition that this is important and it really does kind of set the stage for the parties to work together on something. I would say a really good example of that too is at the multilateral level and the WTO, which in 2017 in Buenos Aires at the WTO ministerial conference, there was a gender declaration that resulted that has really, even though non-binding, has really pulled together countries to start looking at how to increase focus on gender and trade. So, and now there's going to be for the first time ever a gender congress in Geneva in December. So multilaterally, this has really kind of been put on the stage, even, even through something that's a, a softer kind of legal approach. The same thing is, I think, true in a trade agreement context. But a gender protocol or a gender chapter is sort of one way of doing this. It's a more comprehensive way. If you look at trade agreements, you can see gender appear in a lot of other ways too, in preambles and objectives scattered throughout provisions. A lot of it, again, tends to be more aspirational language, but some of it is more binding. Rarely does a trade agreement have something where gender provisions are subject to dispute settlement. So that's not really something that we're seeing. Now, where does this all go? If you'll give me just a few minutes to talk about what I think might be on the horizon or what could or should be on the horizon for this. I think We've been talking a lot about the context. We started this conversation not talking about trade agreements, but really talking about what women are doing around the world in terms of their work. That's where we should be starting the conversation on trade agreements, too. We really need to think about trade agreements as this instrument, which is exactly how they work in most contexts, to advance these either address some of the challenges that women face or advance the opportunities that are there. You know, trade agreements tend to be organized by issue area. They also have a lot to do with different sectors. So we could take a much more comprehensive approach on gender, on small businesses, as we look at trade agreements, rather than doing what we're doing now, which is kind of putting the words in, you know, of gender or SME in, you know, in a provision or even a protocol. And we could look at the agreement as a whole and think about how it would have an impact on women or small businesses. So I hope that that's at least 
part of where we go with this. And I think with the AFCFTA, I'm excited. The paper that I worked on kind of advocated for this more comprehensive approach. There are others who have been doing this too, a colleague at UNCTAD, Nadira Bayat. And so others are saying like, this is where we should go. We should have this more comprehensive approach, but we haven't really seen that emerge yet. It's just exciting though, that at least there are some options on the table. And I think in doing that, we have won the opportunity to to kind of integrate more flexibility too, which we talked about a little bit in our conversation to deal with uncertainty and things that come up that we might not be expecting. We also, I think, have the ability to make these agreements more equitable and more inclusive. So I'll stop with that, but happy to elaborate. That's fascinating. And it's it, it very nicely covers the angle of the role that, that trade agreements, both bilateral and multilateral, can play in moving this conversation forward. Beyond that, there's also, of course, a role for, say, international organizations and institutions. And that leads me to, to, to ask Beata, at the EBRD, what role does, does gender play or gender concerns play in decisions that the bank makes in terms of its investment strategies? An excellent question, Ram. Gender dimension has become extremely important for us. We have just launched our gender strategy, and we are committed to having a large share of our projects with a gender component. We work mostly with private sector. We also work with countries, some of which are quite conservative when it comes to gender norms. So I hope that our work on gender will contribute to improving employment opportunities and increasing living standards of women in the regions where we are active. Great. And that's a, that's a terrific note to end on. What I've learned from this really interesting conversation from both of you is that international trade policy shouldn't just take gender equality and gender norms into account, but it's actually s- central to the question of where the next frontier of international trade policy lies. It's not just about building awareness or creating aspiration. It's also about really taking tangible steps to either improve market access, lowering barriers for small and medium enterprise to access the the global market space, and to push the question of gender norms, both at the company level as well as the sectoral level. So there's a lot in there. Also, the question of gender protocols is a fascinating space to watch. Unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. Katrin Kuhlman, Beate Javorczyk, thank you very much for sharing your valuable time with me and particularly for sharing your very interesting insights on the topic. If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, please go to our website, www.aig.co.uk slash GTS. The AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search 
AIG Global Trade Series 2022. Or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.